All right, we are back. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee on this December 22nd, 2013. Um, one of the final Sundays of the year, at least of the secular calendar. And we are in Victory of Light. We're up to chapter 4, which is on page 40. Um, and we'll get there in a moment. Now, the way, what, we've discussed, what we've discussed the last few weeks is the idea that the battle between the Syrian Greeks and the Jewish people in the story of Hanukkah was not just a battle, was not just a physical battle, was not a battle over who has, um, who can own, who has, uh, who's going to run the temple, etc., but it was a spiritual battle. Judaism has always looked at Purim as being a physical battle. They wanted to kill us. We won. Let's uh, let's um, let's spin a grager, right? Let's and let's turn the arch enemy into a cookie, Hamantashen. And Hanukkah was a spiritual threat, not a physical threat. So Haman wanted to kill us because we were Jewish. The Syrian Greeks didn't want to kill us. What did they want? They wanted us to drop the whole God thing. Now they had many gods, but they wanted us to drop the. God commanded us this mitzvah and that's why we're doing it or that's why we're studying Torah because it's God's wisdom. They said, let's cut that out of the, cut that out of the equation. A, an important note to, to, to mention, and this is something that a few people have asked me, is that if you look in the texts, not only in this mystical text, but in many, many Jewish texts, you'll see the enemy of the Jews, the time of Hanukkah referred to as Yavan or the Yivanim which is translated as Greeks. Okay, Greeks. We know that the king, Antiochus, was not a Greek king. He wasn't Greek. And the nation that the, whose army was sent to, uh, to defile the temple was not a Greek army. It was from the Syrian Empire. So what's the question? Why do we call the Syrians Greeks? What's the answer? So again, the reason why I'm raising this question is because a few people have asked me after the last few classes. Rabbi, is it Syrians? Or Assyrians? Or is it Greeks? Like, what's, who, like who is involved in this story? So the answer is, it's both Syrians and Greeks. Why? Because the Syrian Empire, the King, king Antiochus III, who was the king during the time of the story of Hanukkah, they, they, it was part of the Seleucid Empire. And they were a Hellenistic... They, their values, their culture was Hellenistic, which is basically based off of Greek... Uh, the Greek values, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek literature, etc. So although the actual um, geography of, of, the, of the empire was Syria, was a Syrian uh, king, was a Syrian army, etc., but they were driven by Greek values. Good morning. Welcome. So the way that the, the sages always looked at the story of Hanukkah is not that it was a physical battle between two nations, but it was a spiritual battle between two ideologies, between two ways, two outlooks on life itself. The Greek outlook, which is a Hellenistic outlook, which we might call a secular, enlightened outlook, versus a Jewish, spiritual, godly outlook. And that was the battle. 
It, if it was a physical battle, it would be between the Syrians and the, uh, the, the, the Israelis, if you will, or the Judeans, who lived in Israel, or Judea, whatever you wanted to call them. But it wasn't a physical battle. It wasn't a battle over land, over, you know, they wanted to expand their empire geographically, etc. It was an ideological battle. It was a war over ideas. And the Greek idea was that the mind is on top and the mind is everything. The mind is our God. And the Jewish take was, and even the gods that we have are gods that make sense to us in the Greek, in the Greek way of thinking. It's gods that we have created because it makes sense that those gods will fill a certain role. Right? We need a god for fertility. We need a, there has to be someone in control of fertility. Boom! We have a god for fertility. It's, you create, it's like apps. Right? You need, you need a function, you need something, so boom, you, have, you create, create an app, you create a god. So, the Greek way of thinking is that the mind is on top, the human being is on top, and even the gods that we create are in our image. The Jewish notion is that God is on top. And that we sublimate, we, we totally surrender our own will, we surrender at, at times our own understanding in order to do what God wants. And that's the ultimate expression of connection that a Jew has. Jen. I was just wondering if the common man in the Greek world actually got the philosophy because that was an argument. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And that's why when, when, when the, the sages, not only the mystics, when, when, the, when the sages, the Talmud, etc., the Midrash, when they talk about the battle, the battle of Hanukkah, it's not about the Greek fellow, the fellow from Greece fighting against the Jew. There weren't, there weren't people from Greece fighting. It's not a, so somebody came, to me, somebody came to me in person, somebody sent me an email saying, you know, Greeks? The Greeks didn't fight. I said, you're right, the Greeks didn't fight. But the Syrians were fighting, Antiochus was fighting. This movement was fought based on the Greek philosophy and ideology. That was, that was what was driving the conflict. Okay. Make sense so far? So I ask you a question. Who cares? No, 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 you'll see what I'm, what I'm asking in a second. What I mean by who cares is, why did the Jews get so upset? You know, the way we're explaining it, we're going to elaborate on this today, we're going to expand upon it in a moment. But the way we explained it last week toward the end of the class, is that the Greeks really didn't have a problem, again, not the Greeks, the, those that were driven by the Greek philosophy, they didn't have a problem if the Jews would study Torah and do mitzvot. They had a problem if we said that we're studying God's Torah and fulfilling God's mitzvot. Like once you put God into the equation, that's when they had a problem. So I ask you a question. Why did it bother the Jews so much to say, fine, we're just going to study as, as a book of secular wisdom or a book of philosophy, and we're going to do the mitzvot not because God said so, but because we understand it. Why couldn't they have said that? And I don't really mean, why couldn't they pretend on the outside to be Hellenized, if you will, but on the inside practice Judaism. What I mean is, why is it really objectively such a big deal if the mitzvah is coming from God, and that's why I'm doing it, or if I'm doing the mitzvah because it makes sense to me? Like, what's the big deal? What's the difference? So, last week we said... You know, you have the commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, do not kill, do not murder. 
Okay, so I'm not going to do that because I, I think that it's morally reprehensible. I think that it's an assault on, on, uh, on someone else's life and autonomy, obviously, right? Clearly, that's, that's the definition of what it is. And therefore, I think it's not a good thing. So I'm not going to do it. How is that fundamentally different than me saying the reason why I'm not going to kill, take life, is because God, said, God told me that in the Torah and the Ten Commandments and in the Torah itself? What's the difference? So, we could argue, like I've argued in the past, either last week or the week before, that when it's based on the mind, when it's based on my understanding of right and wrong, at that point there's a slippery slope. Because I can justify sometimes taking life. Like the Nazis did. They said that, that taking life is not okay. Oh, but maybe this is not so... Maybe, maybe you have to redefine what life is. Maybe this is not life. Maybe less desirables, right? God forbid, are not considered to be full life. And therefore, in order to create a pure society, etc., we can take life. It's an argument. Once you get into the realm of philosophy, once you, once you rationalize things then you can rationalize anything. That's one argument. But I think there's a more profound idea here that kind of, uh, that, that, is, that is beneath the surface as far as why it's so important and why the, the Maccabees and why the, why, why the Jews were so adamant in battling against this Greek influence and this Greek way of thinking. And in my opinion, it goes back to the Exodus itself. But before we get there, Jen, I think you had another question. Um, I thought I heard either you or somebody else say that the problem arose when we had a command month or something that we didn't understand. And then were you not supposed to do that because you couldn't understand it? In other words, if it's all based on rationale and the moment, so the moment you don't understand so you're not going to do it. Oh, okay, good. So that's another problem. So now, so right, so one hundred percent right. So not only is the is the is the concern that you're going to rationalize and therefore begin to kind of move away from the original intent, but you can also say, "Look, I don't understand it, therefore I reject it." That's what you're saying, basically, one hundred percent. But I think there's another. I think there's. I don't know if it's deeper, but I think there is a, a very deep concept here that that it may, that we must bring up. Because it's very relevant to the discussion. And that is when you go back to the story of the Exodus. And the reason why I was thinking about it uh, yesterday and today is because yesterday in Shul, in synagogues around the world, we started to read the book of Exodus. The book of Genesis is kind of like the introduction. I'm not belittling the book. It's, I'm, not, I'm not putting down the book of Genesis. It's not just an introduction. There's tremendous, etc. But as far as the story of the Jewish people, you really get to the birth of the nation. Of course, we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you really get to the heart and soul, to the meat and potatoes, to the bread and butter. How many more cliches can we throw out? You really get to the, to the, uh, to the essence of the story when you hit the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus begins with the Jews in Egypt. And they began small. They began as a family, really, of 70 people. A few generations, totaling 70. And by a few generations later, they had multiplied... They had been fruitful, and they had multiplied, and now there were many, many, many folks that were from the family of Jacob, and Isaac, and Abraham, what we would call later the Jewish people. And the story goes that Pharaoh, what do we all know the story? That Pharaoh is concerned, 
at least that's his, that's his cover story that he's concerned. What's going to happen? If there's a war, the Jews might join the other side, and from inside we're going to be destroyed, and they're going to take us. That's ah, it's crazy. So he says we have to subjugate, we have to subdue, we have to enslave this people. And he begins a uh, he begins a um, he begins a policy of basic of slave labor, as well as a policy of killing children, of killing the boys, infanticide. And this is what is going on at the beginning of the book of Exodus, until, of course, Moses arrives in the scene, and he has his own dramatic uh, story of being born and being hidden and then being cast upon the Nile and being rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, etc., being raised, in, ironically enough, in Pharaoh's palace itself. And he eventually is called upon by God at the ripe old age of 80 years old. So you think 80 is old? Moses began his career as Jewish prophet and leader of par excellence at 80. What's the message? It's never too late to begin. You never know. When you hit 80, you may be able to, to be a Moses. you still got time. Alright, so Moses is approached by God at the, at, the, uh, at the burning bush. And by the way, I mentioned this in Shul yesterday, but it's one of the verses that I think really capture so much about, about what Judaism says about how to listen to life's messages. Just... This is not the reason why I have the Chumash open. It's for a different verse, but I just want to point out a quick verse over here. The burning bush, the Torah tells us as follows. Moses gazed and looked. The thorn bush was burning with fire, but the thorn bush was not being consumed. So you have this thorn bush that's on fire, but it's not actually being consumed. Moses said, let me turn now and see this great spectacle. Why will the thorn bush not burn? God saw that he had turned to see, and God called to him from within the thorn bush, and he said, Moshe, Moshe, and Moshe replies, here I am. And then God says, God gives him the, uh, the, the commandment, or the, the call, God calls upon him to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt. Now, what's interesting in that narrative, and again, this is parenthetical, so keep this in a big parenthesis in your mind. Parenthetically, what I find fascinating about this is that God does not speak to him until he makes the effort to turn aside and to really observe the great spectacle. How many times are there things that are going on around us, but we don't take the time to pay attention to the messages? And you never know where God is hiding. In right, you see, oh wow, that looks interesting. Oh well, I got to get to work, and you you gun it. You know, you're you're moving too fast. You don't have the time or the space, or you say you don't have the time or the space, the inner space, to really pay attention to what could very well be a sign or a call that changes your life. So it's important to slow down a little bit like Moses did and really pay attention to life's messages because that unusual spectacle that you see, and it's not only a burning bush, it could be an interesting person, it could be a person that's in need. Whatever it is, you can find God in that space. But if you don't stop and in a sense turn away, turn off the path, turn away from what you were doing personally, and you'll never get that encounter. And God will perhaps not speak as He did to Moses, to you. So it's very important to pay attention. Also, another way of understanding this, along the same lines, is that in general, for a person to really be open to God's messages, they have to turn away from themselves. They have to be able to... right. So Moses says, let me turn now and see this great spectacle. You have to really be not only open with 
time and space to, to, to observe the signs around us, but inside, you have to be open to something other than yourself. And when God sees that He's open, then God is able to communicate with Him. Which really gets to the point that I wanted to mention. Why I have the Chumash open here. And that is when God calls upon Moses, Moshe, to approach Pharaoh and deliver the big news. What's the big news? God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh, and what should, what's the message? What's the famous message? It begins with a let, let my people go, right? That's the message, let my people go. That's not the message. It's not the message. Those who will not live by the law shall die. Right? He smashes the tablets. So here's the thing. Hollywood gets a little bit wrong. They got it mostly right. The reason why I'm saying it's wrong is because they left out the second half of the statement. And when you leave out the second half of the statement, it radically alters the message. Right? It's like even a sign, depending on how you read something, it could mean something totally different. You know, like there used to be a pool out there. Remember, who remembers? In the back, back of Chabad, we used to have like a tennis court. And a pool? This was like Beverly Hills. This was like we were living large. Okay. So there was a sign that said no swimming in the pool. So they tell a story, and you've heard this before, right? Of the old Jewish guy who's caught swimming in the pool where it says no swimming in the pool. And the fellow comes and says, Get out of the pool, it says no swimming in the pool. He says, That's how you read it. He says, What do you mean that's how I read it? How do you read it? He says, Here's how I read it. No. Swimming in the pool. So depending on how you so depending on how you quote Moses, sorry, how you quote God is really what the message means. And the way that we know the message is radically different from the way the message is recorded in Torah. And it's fundamentally a distinction, in my opinion, between the, Jew, the classical Jewish way of, of, of thinking and perhaps a more Greek way or secular way of thinking. So what's the distinction? So God says to Moses, let my people go. Sorry, tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that, so that, so that they may serve me on the mountain. And that's a big difference. Shlach ami v'yavduni. Send my people out, let my people go. And they will serve me. In the desert, on the mountain, depending on which verse you're reading, God communicates the message multiple times. This is what God, the God of Israel, said. This is the first time Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh to actually deliver the news. And what do they say? Not what God says. What do they say? Send out, they're quoting God, send out my nation and let them sacrifice to me in the desert. And Pharaoh replies, Who is God that I should listen to his voice and let Israel out? I do not know of God, nor, nor will I let Israel. I don't know what you're talking about. But the message is radically different. You see, the message of let my people go is a very popular message today. It's, a, it's Nelson Mandela's message. It's, uh, it's, it's a freedom fight. It's, it's Martin Luther King Jr. It's Dr. King's message. It's let my people go that oppression is not okay. Let my people go. My people should be free. So what's the message? Give me a second. What's the message? The message is, that message, is that you have no right to oppress these people. 
Don't oppress it. Let these people go. They deserve freedom. You are, Pharaoh, according to this message, you are violating their human rights. You're violating their civil rights. They have a right to be free. But that's not really God's message. God's message is, tell Pharaoh to let my people, quote, let my people go, because I need them for something. Because there's a job that I need them to do. And they can't do my job so long as they're doing your job. Because if you have a contract out with them, so they can't focus on me. Which means that the Exodus is not really about freedom. It's really about who are you being subjugated to. And here's where we get to the big idea. The story of Exodus is not the story of freedom. As we think of freedom. It's the story of redefining our loyalties. Not only loyalties, it's redefining what whom we are subjugated to. And what the Exodus teaches us is that we ought, we ought never subjugate ourselves to a human being. We ought never enslave ourselves to a human being, even, and here's the big idea, even ourselves. Even ourselves. And let me rephrase that, especially ourselves. The Exodus is teaching us, and that's why it's the fundamental Jewish story. It's the story that Judaism begins with. It's the story that we relive every Passover. It's the story that we recall every single day in our prayers. It's a story that we recall in the Shema that we say every morning when we wake up and every, every, and, and every night when we go to bed. It's the story that is ingrained upon our minds as we keep Shabbat, not only to remember the creation of heaven and earth in seven days, but also... To remember the Exodus. Exodus, Exodus. Why? Because it reminds us. Because it ingrains within us. It impresses upon us. It sears within our collective psyches and our collective hearts and our collective souls that we are never to subjugate ourselves to a human being. We are never to enslave ourselves to a mortal being, even and especially our own mortal human being, i.e. ourselves. But rather... We are to subjugate ourselves and dedicate ourselves to Hashem, to God. And it makes all the sound so, so now you're going to ask, so, so you're still not free. You're the freest a human being could ever be. Why? Because when you're enslaved by yourself, what you're doing is you're limited by something finite. And we all know how, how finite we are, how frail we are. We all know our own insecurities. We all know our own challenges, our own frailties, our own whatever it is. Anxieties, our own fears, our own all, all of this stuff, our own paranoias, all of the stuff that goes on inside of us. So you enslave yourself to yourself? That's a pretty depressing notion. How about enslaving yourself to somebody else? That's also pretty depressing with all of their issues and all of their frailties and all. But you subjugate yourself, you surrender to God, that's the most liberating thing a human being can experience. Why? Because no longer are you limited 
to the realm of the finite, you are now opening yourself up to that which is infinite, to that which is beyond you. And that's the most liberating thing. That will happen, but it's more about letting go of yourself than finding yourself. It's more about surrendering. You see, as long as we hold on to who we are, we're going to be inherently limited. We all know that we're limited. That's the point. We all know our limitations. So, as long as you, so long as you're holding on to yourself. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's a byproduct of that. A byproduct of connecting with God is that you will be living your purpose. But it's not that you're going into it in a sense... I'm I'm using this term not so harshly, but it's not that you're going into it selfishly to say, I want to find my purpose because then I'll feel happy and satisfied. Because that's still about you. What it is, is really recognizing that I am here for a purpose. I didn't create myself. No one created themselves. Everything, every human being, we know on a very simple level, every human being comes from another human being, or comes from other human beings, plural. And you just keep, on, keep that chain going back and back and back. Everyone came from, everything comes from something else. And ultimately, everything comes from God. So, the more, you know, the more I... When I'm really open, so so if I can ask my I, so I, therefore the question therefore there's a valid question that I need to ask myself, and that is so if God ultimately put me here or put who somebody else there who then put them there who put them there and then put me there, so God is putting me here, so why? What's the purpose? So God says I'll tell you what the purpose is. Here's a book. It's right in there. Little scroll action. The original scrolling. So take a look at that, and that's that's really why you're here. You say, okay. So you live. So you say, look, I'm here for a reason. God put me here, and I have a, I have a task to fulfill, and I'm dedicated to it. Will it bring happiness? Of course, it'll bring happiness. Will it bring satisfaction? Yes. Will you be living your life's mission? Absolutely. Am I doing it because I want to feel better about myself? Well, that's kind of missing the point. It's kind of missing the point. That's not the it's not the worst thing in the world if you get satisfaction about doing a mitzvah. Because you're still doing a mitzvah. But is it kind of missing the point? It's kind of missing the point. See, Hashem says, not to Moses, to Moshe, not tell Pharaoh to let my people go, because they deserve to be free. It's not about freedom. It's never about free. God never said the words, my people should be free. Free to do whatever they want. That's not the objective of the Exodus. The objective of the Exodus is to serve God. And serving God is something fun. Serving God is the most freeing thing. But it's not freedom the way a human being would define freedom. Because a human being defines freedom in a way that is, that makes sense to a finite human being. Which is, okay, so I'll define what I want to do. And guess what? You're still limited by yourself. You're still a slave. Now, instead of being a slave to your boss, I quit. Wonderful. Who are you a slave to? Now yourself. Is that any better? Look, here's the reality. The reality is, I've visited South Africa many, many times. And I've said this many times. Is that you can take a people out of one form of slavery, but if you don't empower them with something higher, greater than themselves, you will have created another form of slavery. 
whether it's a slavery of, of, of violence, whatever, it doesn't make a difference what it is. You will keep people in a cycle of slavery so long as the, the one model of, of freedom that's worked is the Jewish model. And you know how I, why I say it works? When was the last time you heard a Jewish person say, I really hate those Egyptians for what they did? That's when you know that you're free. That's when you know that you're free. And it's not just because it's been 3,000 years. That's not, it's not, never, never, you look through the five books. They traveled the desert for 40 years. They never said, we really hate those Egyptians. You know what they said? Let's go back to Egypt because they were confession against God. But that's a different story. But they never said, they never said, we hate the Egyptians, we despise the Egyptians, the reason why we're stuck, the reason why is because of the Egyptians, they never said that. Because God took them out and not only freed them physically, but God freed them spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. Why? How? Sorry, how? Paradoxically, by giving them the opportunity and giving them the tools to surrender to something greater than themselves. Because slavery exists not only when it's to somebody else, but it also exists when, it's, when you're stuck in yourself as well. That's also slavery. There's no difference. It's still slavery to, a mor- slavery to a mortal human being. It makes no difference. When the Greeks are coming to the Jews and saying, study Torah as an intellectual book and serve the mind. Do a mitzvah because it makes sense to you. You know what the Jew hears? You're enslaving me to a human being. And you may say that, yeah, but it's to the smartest human being who ever lived. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, the greatest Greek philosophers. Give yourself over to them. Really? Give yourself over to follow your heart, follow your dreams. Give yourself over to yourself. Sounds so empowering. It's not empowering. It's enslaving. And we know where it ends. We've seen it play out again and again. When you're enslaved, when you're, when you're stuck here, doesn't matter. You can change the names. So I'm not slave to my boss. I'm slave to the new boss or I'm slave to myself. It doesn't make a difference. You're still enslaved to a human being. The Judaism, the, the foundation of Judaism, the foundation of Torah is Nasev Nishma. When the Jews stood by, by Mount Sinai, and God said, do you want the Torah? Every God, it's, uh, Medrash tells us, that our sages tell us, that God shopped the Torah around every single nation. And every nation that was offered the Torah had one response. When God said, do you want the Torah? You know what they responded? What would you respond if God said, do you want the Torah? Do you want this book? What would you respond? Sure. Nah. <laughs> Ugh, you're too I'll, look, Jew- I'll look at it. You're too Jewish for me. <laughs> what would you check respond? Let me check it out first. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what it says. Yeah. Okay. That's what I meant by sure. Right, sure. Yeah, like why not? But uh, let me hear what it says. Why? Because then I will vet it. I will decide. I, I, I. So who are you, so who are you following? You're still following yourself. Oh, like the I, I, I. I, I, I. <laughs> right, so you're still following yourself. So I'm following Torah. You're not following Torah. You're following what you decided makes sense in Torah. It's not Torah. That's not surrendering to God. And that's not being truly free. I know we're not studying about Passover, but look, the Baal Shem Tov said that we have to take messages, as I mentioned before, from everything that happens around us. So the fact that we started the book of Exodus yesterday, and the fact that we're talking about these themes in our Hanukkah discourse, in our Hanukkah mystical text, 
It comes together. Because that's really what it's about. The Torah is not about, a mitzvah is not about, well, it makes sense to me, so I'm going to do it. It's not only because of the slippery slope that we discussed last time. It's not only because when the, germ, when the Nazi says, I know that it says, do not kill, do not murder, but these people, it's not considered uh, murdering, it's considered cleansing. That's not the only problem with it. Although that is, that is that, that, that's one of the consequences of the problem. But the, what is the essential problem? It's that you are subjugating yourself, you are enslaving yourself to yourself. And as long as you are enslaved to a human being, no matter who that is, it could be the greatest philosopher, it could be you. As long as you're enslaved to a human being, you will forever remain limited and not be able to touch the divine. And that's what the objective is about. God wanted to give us the greatest gift possible. And what is that? The opportunity to connect with Him and have a relationship with Him. And, then, and what is a relationship? As we've discussed countless times in this class, a relationship means I'm open to what you want, not because I understand it, but because it's important to you, because it's about you. That's what a relationship is about. A relationship is me surrendering myself on a certain level, to your wishes, to your desires. That's what a relationship is. If a relationship is, yes, honey, I'll do what you want, only when I understand and I agree. Otherwise, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. That's not a relationship. What kind of relationship is that? It's not the healthiest relationship. Because what it means is that I'm really in a relationship with myself. So as long as I understand it, it's kosher, it makes sense. The moment I don't understand it, you're on your own. So who am I in a relationship with? Myself. So again, the exodus from the beginning, and that's why when Hollywood, not only Hollywood, I'm not going to blame Hollywood, when we think about the exodus and we think about freedom, we say, you know what the exodus is about? It's about a, a nation gaining their sovereignty. It's a nation becoming their own, gaining their own footing and not being enslaved by another nation. That's not really the story. Because you can take the Jew out of Egypt, but the Egypt, but the Egypt might still be in the Jew. You can take the person out of slavery, but the slavery might still be inside of them. Because they're still enslaving themselves to a human being. You know, relationships, there are... Okay, forget that. Here's the point. Here's the point. As long as you're not surrendered to something truly higher than yourself, truly higher than anything human, you're still going to be enslaved in one form or another. When you, when you are a slave, if you will, and I don't like the terminology, but when you surrender, that's a more, I think it's a more accurate terminology and also a little less evocative, less provocative. So when you, are, when you surrender to God, you're no longer a slave to the mortal, to the finite. You now touch something greater than yourself. And there's something extremely liberating about that and fulfilling about that. But it's not about that. Because if it's about that, then you haven't truly surrendered. It says in the Talmud, Eved Melech Melech. The servant of a king is the king himself. Because when you're transparent, you take on the properties of that which you're transparent to. So you want to be transparent to yourself, you're going to still st- stay stuck in yourself. Transparent to another human being, you're staying stuck to a human being. By the way, when I say transparent to a human being, and I said before about a relationship means to surrender to human beings, you're saying, you might be wondering, so are you supposed to be a slave to another or not a slave to another? Depends what you're talking about. In a relationship, it's healthy to give your all to the other and to surrender to what the other one wants, in a healthy context, of course. 
At the same time, that's not the be-all and end-all of what a human being is supposed to achieve. And that is a surrender as well to something higher than oneself, to God. Yeah. When you say surrender, 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 yeah. I, I don't really know how to do that. What that means. Yeah, here's what, here's, does it mean let go? Does it mean compromise? Here's what it really means. Here's what it really means on a very simple, on a very basic level. When you open up the Torah and you read some of the mitzvot and, and, and you come across something that... Mm, I don't know, I don't really get it, I don't really understand it, it doesn't resonate. One who is surrendering to the divine will, as contained in the Torah, is going to say, I'm going to do this mitzvah whether or not I understand it. Why? Because it's what Hashem wants. As opposed to me saying, you know what, I'm not ready to do it because I don't understand it, so let me do the things that I understand. Now, that's good, because you're doing good things, and that's, there's nothing wrong with doing good things, especially when they're a mitzvah, when they're mitzvot. Do good things and do mitzvot. But what is surrender? Surrender is, even though I don't yet understand it, I don't appreciate, I don't really understand what, what, it, what difference it makes if I put the scroll on my doorpost, if I don't put it on the doorpost, if I wrap to if I don't wrap to if I light the Shabbat candles, if I don't light the Shabbat candles. I, I, I don't really get it. Surrender means, I say, you know what? I, might, I may not get it, but if it's really all about, but if, it's, if it remains all about me, the words I want to use, for myself at least, that's a very frightening proposition. That I should live life and be stuck in myself for 120 years? Oh, yeah. David, save me. <laughs> Please. Hook up a brother. Let me out. Well, you can, maybe you can help me and then send me somewhere else. I, I mean, really? That's it? 120 years just stuck, stuck in my head? Wow. That's, I mean, that's not free. That's not free. Because I'll end up doing... It's not only a slippery slope. I'm not free by definition because I'm stuck in a, in a mortal finite space. And I'm not free because I know what trouble my head can get me in. We all know the trouble that our heads can get us in. You rationalize things, justify things, make poor decisions. That's, that's what happens. Surrender. And a very, again, to answer your question, it's a very, very practical question. Um... And it's a very practical answer. What surrender means, that when I open up the Torah, I open up various you know, books, and I see that, okay, this is a mitzvah. Yeah, but I don't really understand it. I don't under, why am I doing it? Surrender means I'm doing it because God said, God put me here, and God said, this is what I want you to do. So I'm doing it. And that, in that moment, you're touching the divine. You're touching something non-mortal. And you're defying some Greek philosophy at the same time, which is an added benefit. But that's really what the Greeks wanted, right? That's really what they wanted. But we don't have an axe to grind. You ever hear a Jew say, ooh, those Greek philosophers, we hate them. Are you kidding me? Maimonides, the greatest Jewish philosopher, quotes many, many times, dozens of times, maybe even hundreds of times, Greek philosophy in his philosophical works. Mor Nevuchim, Guy for the Perplexed, etc., Oh, it's not kosher. Greek philosophy. They wanted a Hanukkah. Oh, they wanted a, they wanted to destroy us. Forget about it. We're done with them. When you're free, you're free, and you don't get stuck. But when the Greek says, "Be a slave to philosophy, be a slave to our mind, to your mind, but not something higher," the Jew says, "If that's the case." Why am I living? What's, what's life? Life is about being a slave to a human being. Slave to myself. That's not life. 
That's not life as defined by the Jewish mission. That's not life defined by Exodus, by the Torah, by Passover. That's not life. What is life? Life is the opportunity to connect with something greater than oneself. They said, and this is, is very interesting. So, we had this in a footnote, but the footnote really comes from a talk. The Rebbe gave this talk on, on the fifth night of Hanukkah, 1960. 19, probably 59 actually, because it's before, before New Year's. Anyway, the Rebbe writes over here, or said, he gave this talk, and he said that the Greeks really, in essence, they wouldn't even have been bothered had the Jews said, rationally it makes sense to surrender ourselves to something higher. In other words, if we would have said that, yeah, you know what, logically, it makes sense that there's something greater than logic. It's a logical argument that I need to surrender my logic. Because logically I know that logic can't go everywhere. So therefore, logic itself will dictate if logic is honest, if my logic, my rationale is, is being honest, then I will honestly come to the conclusion that I can't understand everything and therefore I should surrender. But that's not exactly what, what, the Torah call, what God calls upon us to do. God calls upon us to surrender to Him even, not because we understand that it makes sense to, but even when we don't understand. you got to ask a Greek. It feels empowered. Feels empowered. Wait, wait, no, hold on one second. Are you asking why the Greeks specifically or why human beings? What's, well, what's your question? Why the Greeks? I, I, can I rephrase your question? Okay, so really, yeah. Why do human beings yeah. feel that? And the answer is what David answered because we want to feel in control. Who wants to surrender control? We don't want to surrender. No one wants to jump unless you're Felix Bumgartner, which that guy was awesome. Okay. That dude is a, just unreal. Anyway, but no one wants to jump although he had a parachute. Totally. Oh, he's the dude that jumped from the space, edge of space. That was amazing. I saw that live. YouTube. I don't know if it's an insult. It just—it's like, what are you like? What are you saying? Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you guys? Where? Can we can we knock some sense into y'all? All y'all? Like, what's what are you doing? So, but but I think David's answer is a powerful one. Who wants to cede control? Who wants to give up control? Now, there's something... Sometimes it's... I mean, when you allow yourself in those little moments to really let it go, it is unbelievable. It's, it's, it's empowering. Yes. It's empowering, but it was scary going in. That's the thing. So that, if you go into it because you want to go into it, so it's almost like you're still... See, that's the subtle point that, 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 that said that... The Yavanim vault and Afilu Maskim Given, I'm just reading Yiddish. As the Yiddin Zomakayims and the Chukim Mitzvahs, the Greeks, not Greek, they were Syrians, but the Greek philosophy would have even, would have even, um, seated or would have even uh, Maskim, or Haskama, they would have, um, agreed to. Yeah, uh, they would have signed off on if the Jews would have fulfilled the Chukim, the, the, the Mitzvah that don't make sense, through a certain explanation. You can fulfill the irrational mitzvot. Even though you don't understand it with your logic. Thereby, as there's, as there's, 
Zainik about Sechel Nifla, had Mistama Oich in the Chukim Afarstandikintam. So you can say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I don't understand why I'm doing this mitzvah, but I'm going to do it anyway because whoever gave this mitzvah certainly has a reason for it. Whoever authored this certainly has a reason for it. So there must be some reason. So that's one form of surrender. But I'm still surrendering to logic. I'm still, I'm still a slave to logic. And the point of Torah is really, the point of the Exodus, is to take us out of that space. To free us from our own grasp. Which is the hardest thing. The hardest thing that's ever been done. And, and I, I, I say it again and again. The mistake that's made in countless efforts to free human beings... The, the mistake that's made again and again is that you don't truly free them by taking them out from control of another human being. You only free a person by empowering them with something greater than themselves. You will never free a human being by pulling them out of someone else's grasp. That does not free somebody. It doesn't create freedom. That just creates a vacuum. A vacuum in which some other master will take control. Another master on a human level. Whether it's another human being or whether it's themselves. But you're not creating freedom. Torah created the model. And no one can replicate it. Not that they can't. But no, no one has replicated Who's replicated it? Maybe people have replicated it. You study Torah, you replicate it. But that's the only way. Yeah. Does it make sense so far? Okay. Yes. So here's the thing. First of all, the premise of the question is society doesn't allow for it, so find a different society. That's, that's one answer. So, yeah. If something is true, if something is true, the fact that society doesn't agree with it, that's irrelevant to the conversation on one level. But I, I want to address your... So the like, first thing is, I'm not, I'm not bothered by that question. Find a different job, find a different society. But I don't know that it's a conflict. I think on rare occasions it could be a conflict. And the reason why I'm saying that is because Torah and mitzvot are very methodical. There's a system, in a sense. Not a logical system, but there is a system. There are certain mitzvot that we do at certain times during the day. It's not like the Torah demands us not to have any responsibilities and not to go to work and just, just live in the moment. Okay, that was from Moses to the burning bush. He needed to pay attention, and we need to pay attention. But the, the concept of, of doing, you know, following Torah and mitzvot doesn't mean that therefore you can't have a schedule. You may have to wake up a little bit earlier to get some stuff in before you go to work, but it doesn't mean you can't have a schedule. On the contrary, Judaism is very much about having a schedule and being methodical. You, know, you open up the code of Jewish law, it's very precise. You wake up in the morning, there's a formula what you're supposed to do. You wash your hands, you say a blessing, you do this, you do that, you pray. Very, very logical. Before you eat, you say a blessing. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, that you're just losing 
all sense of time and responsibility being in the moment, it means that you are surrendering, you know, as per what God wants, you're surrendering to something, you know, something higher. So it's not necessarily at odds. But I, I wanted to give you the first answer just because it's also good to know that. That if we ever come in conflict, it's like, I want to be a Jew, but look, the Greeks, the, the Greek society, the philosophy, the, they don't really allow it. So find a different society. Fight them from the hills, whatever it is, right? Guerrilla warfare. Right? Create some Maccabees and, uh, you know, not the Maccabees. That's a different band. Okay. But I, I don't really think that essentially there's a conflict there. So it's not structure. Yeah. Structure. It's structure, but it's not our structure. It's structured from the Torah. I wanted just to go back for a moment. Yes. Right. First of all, both those things would be problematic because Pharaoh was God. Or Saul right. was God. So right there, Good. Right, when he said, who is this God? Because I am God. Exactly. He says, who is this God? I do not know of God, nor will I let Israel out. Because he's like, who's, he, who's Hashem? Now, the words that, God, that Moses uses, Hashem, and God's four-letter name that we don't pronounce, the Yudke Vavke. So he says, I don't know that, that, that God. I have many God. There are many Egyptian gods, and I am the ultimate. And Right. So, so what, what I find interesting is, you know, if you had switched that and started with, you know, and because I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard of Simon Sinek, you know, the why, the goal of service. Yes. Which I love that. That's like, that's not Judaism. You and me both. Right? So it's of course. Yeah. But, but so I always think now in terms of the why. By the way, Simon Sinek, we once did that. Remember that? The why, the what, the how, that TED Talk? We once, I once showed it here in this class. Really, it's amazing. I showed it to my students all the time. It's just, it's amazing. So. But what's interesting about it is, so I was trying to put it in context. Like, you know, you have to give, so the why would have to be a completely different why if you're talking to the Pharaoh, right? Right. And, I, and I've been trying, I've been sitting here thinking of what that would be, so that whatever you say afterwards doesn't matter because he's already accepted it once you get the why. So you're so I, I hear I hear you saying a few things. I hear you saying a few things. Number one, and tell me if I'm if I'm pick, if I'm accurately hearing what you're saying. Number one, maybe God should have started with the with the why first. And I was tell Pharaoh I need them to serve me, so let them go. Number two is maybe give a more compelling why that he can relate to. I hear I hear both of those points. Yeah, like the why that I don't think it says the why that. By that I can't enslave you without being enslaved myself because I have to keep you my with you as my slave. I'm then a slave to that to maintaining that relationship. Right. And it was he he himself was enslaved right. by having a slave. Well, that, that, I don't or by empowering himself as a god, he's he's right. being a slave to his own right. his own. But even even just the that that relationship itself I is can't, a slave. I can't be on either side of the slave relationship and be free. It's it's very interesting that you say. I mean, that's that's a profound point. That's an incredible point because as you see, we see this later on when when Pharaoh finally does let the Jewish people go. He's so enslaved to that relationship, he chases after them to his own suicide. I mean, he he chases after to the death because he can't not be in that relationship, in that, in that modality of relationship. But to ask your question, why isn't it stated first, if that's the upshot, I don't know. It's such, it's such a quick, it's like two, it's two words really. Shlach ami v'yavduni. Maybe it's because chronologically they have to first be sent so that they can serve, but that doesn't mean that that is, 
the objective to be sent, but rather the serving is the objective. Now, could Pharaoh understand that? I don't know that Pharaoh was ever able to understand it. Even after the tenth plague, and he, after he lets them go, he still can't really wrap his head around that concept. He still is. Well, yeah, or his own power crumbles, you know, maybe he's a slave to his own power and therefore his own uh, grandeur and he needs to be in control. And therefore, when he has no one to control, he has to run after them to try to control them again. And that's, again, just being a slave to yourself. You know, it says that ten plagues were serving a dual purpose. Number one, to educate the Egyptians. And number two, to, edu- to educate the Jews. Yeah, and, and, and a part of it was, according to the, according to the, uh, to the commentaries, in fact, I think there's even a chart here, this Chumash. In this, in this Chumash, I'll show you what I'm talking about. I'm, on this page, this is end of the Torah portion that we read yesterday. There's a little chart. You guys see this like a little chart box situation? Okay, so this is called, the title of this is Introduction to the Ten Plagues. Now, we didn't read about the Ten Plagues. We're going to read about it this coming week. And it says, it lists the Ten Plagues over here and cites the effect of those Ten Plagues on, uh, on the Egyptians in educating them about God. Because part of the objective of the plagues was, quote, quoting God, the Egyptians shall know that I am God. Because when Pharaoh says, I don't know who God is, so God says, all right, let's, let me show you. So, for example, I'm just going to read the miracle and the effect, or the plague slash miracle and the effect. Aaron's staff swallows the staffs of the Egyptian sorcerers, and the effect was that Pharaoh was given the message that God's rulership and staff is mightier than his own. The Nile River turns into blood. And the effect of that is that the deity of Egypt, which was the Nile, one of the deities, they serve the, they worship the Nile, is afflicted in its entirety. So their god is now in pain, if you will, is now red with blood. Infestation of frogs, the deity of, the, of Egypt, again the Nile, is a source of havoc for the whole of Egypt because the frogs emerged from the Nile. So now, not only is your god not helping, it's the source of the problems. Lice infestation. Egyptian sorcerers are unable to duplicate the miracle. They confess that it is, quote, the finger of God. Okay, anyway, every plague had, had, a, um, had a message. And the message is to kind of impress upon the Egyptians as to the existence of something greater than their own gods, greater than Pharaoh, greater than the Nile god, greater than the other gods that they had. And also to impress upon the Jews this concept of that there is something greater as well than the Egyptians in slavery, etc., and that they have a higher calling that they will need to be surre- that they will be surrendering themselves to. And so when they and they got certainly got the message when they stood at Sinai and they said, Nasev and Ishma will do. And then we'll and then we'll ask the questions. That was the ultimate in surrender. I mean when I say out, yes, I'm ready to go. Before I ask you what it is. Do you want this document? Do you want to fulfill all these mitzvot? Yes. What does it say? Right. Yeah, I'm ready to go. That's the ultimate in surrender. Okay. And again, just to bring this back to our Hanukkah discussion. Hanukkah, our sages tell us, and Kabbalah emphasizes and expands and elaborates on this, Hanukkah was a spiritual, a spiritual conflict. The Greeks, or the Greek philosophy, etc., wanted to eradicate the notion of surrendering one's intellect, surrendering oneself to something greater. It's the mind is the measure of all things. 
It's I think, therefore I am. It's it's. Right? These are not necessarily uh, Greek philosophers, yeah. but these are these are derivatives. These are based on that philosophy that was charted, that was established by the Greeks. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with understanding why it is that the Jews took this conflict so seriously and why they really put their foot down and said, you know what, there's no way that we can let this go. I asked the question a little while back, so what was the big deal? So just say, fine, I'll do the mitzvah because it makes sense. So what's the big deal? And not even tell them that you're doing it because it makes sense, but even for yourself, just do it because it makes sense. Is there a fundamental difference? The answer is, yeah, it's a fundamental difference. It's a difference between freedom and oppression. It's the difference between being a slave to, to, to the finite or being surrendering to the infinite. It's all the difference in the world. It's the difference between a human being not ascending, it's getting Kabbalistic, getting mystical, not ascending out of their own space, always remaining in the category that they started off at, or versus actually ascending to become a little bit more divine. As we know, everything in creation, its purpose is to go one notch higher. Everything is supposed to go, is supposed to elevate beyond itself. The human being is meant to elevate beyond him or herself. How do we do that? When we surrender to something greater. Otherwise, we, we get stuck in where we are, we get stuck in who we are, and we're not going anywhere. And, that's, and the Jew knows, fundamentally, from the beginning of their nationhood, the Jew knows that that's unacceptable. That's not, that's not what we're here for. All right. Make sense? Can you give me a definition of emuna? Emuna, faith. Emuna is faith. Emuna is what we have. Emuna is an interesting thing. Emuna could be translated as faith, but it also could be translated as training. What? Training, like an uh, like an uman, is a craftsman. Somebody who, who um, someone who, apprentice. yeah, 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 right, like an apprentice or somebody that's, that's a, that's somebody that does a craft, etc. Somebody that trains, it's, it's about training. So emuna means faith, but it also is related to the word training. And, and the, the, our sages tell us that emuna is not something that's very easy. It's something that requires training. What emuna is really is a person seeing God more than understanding God. And it's actually re- related very much with our conversation. See, the Greeks, again, the Greeks kind of conceded to us understanding God. As long as you can understand God, alright, good. But really surrendering to a God not of our understanding, that's something that they were not so, so on board with. And Muna is really about training oneself to kind of see God beyond what they can understand. And that requires, you know, listening to, to, to the messages that God is sending us and doing mitzvot and training ourselves to really surrender. And then the more you do that, the more a person can, can have that emuna, that there's something beyond what I can see and know. You know, emuna really comes up when, when a person goes through difficult times. So a person goes through difficult times, so they, they, they can hold on to their faith as an anchor. Their faith can be an anchor. The, the challenge is that faith doesn't come when you need it. Because if it wasn't there before, where's it going to come from? It's going to come from a hope? That's not really faith. 
It's like, wow, things are not good, so I really hope that something that God has a plan, so therefore I have faith. It's not really faith, as Judaism defines faith. It's kind of like, you know, hope. It's a little bit different. Whereas emuna, in a Jewish way of understanding it, emuna, faith, is that I have trained myself to see something beyond the surface, and therefore when something happens that I don't understand, I know that there's a story, that narrative beneath the surface, and I know that God has best intentions for me, etc., and I'm going to keep on moving forward. Whether I'll see that come to fruition, whether I won't see it in this lifetime, that's not up to me, but I know that there's something deeper going on. Now, getting back, actually, because this touches on on an interesting thing, and then we're going to jump into some text, we're going to read a little bit. You know, one, one of the premises that this discussion is based on, or one of the underlying, I guess, I don't know if it's a premise, but one of the underlying things that comes up, is, is the Jewish idea that the mind is a terrible tool to use for God. It's like, one example I once gave is like you're using a fork to see the stars. It's not going to work. You kind of need a telescope. It's the, you're using the wrong tool for the, for the task. Right? It's like, I want to see the, um, well, give me a constellation, hook me up. The little dipper, yeah? Is that a real thing? Okay. Ah, what is it? Pleiades. Say it again? Pleiades. Pleiades. I don't even know that one. That must be... A, oh, Pleiades. That sounds Greek. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's awesome. So, you want to see Pleiades. So, I'm like, okay. So, so, two, so, fellow A has their telescope, and they're, they're like, you know, they're looking the Hubble action. They're looking up at the stars. And you are like, I got this. Watch. Watch this. Mm, I don't see it. They must not be out there. Oh, 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 so Pleiades doesn't exist because you use a spoon and you can't see it? No kidding. It's like, wow, that was profound. It's not. You use a spoon. It's not going to see it. It's not going to work. You use your mind to see God, to discover God. It's really not going to work. Your mind is a great tool to stay stuck in yourself. So you want to discover yourself and all your limitations and flaws? You want to discover someone else's flaws? You want to subject yourself and enslave yourself to someone else? The mind is a wonderful tool. Use it and enjoy. You want to connect with God? You may need to let go of the spoon. (laughs) Let go of the mind. Because it ain't going to work. It's the wrong tool for the task. Because God cannot be put into logic. Because God is not a logical formula. God cannot be understood. God is not subject to understanding. So if you want to discover God, and you're using your mind, all you're going to discover is logic, and logic is finite. So all you're doing is being stuck in the same system that you're allegedly trying to get out of. So congratulations. You're stuck. You want to be unstuck? Stop using the spoon. spoon. <coughs> Don't be a mind either. Really? Oh, hey, Max. Say it again. Hey, Max. Good to see you, buddy. Were you here the whole time? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Hook him up. Hook up a brother. I don't know. Uh, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, Max, is your sister here? Is Michelle here? She's not here. Okay. Cool. Um, okay.
Hey Max, if you want, there's tons of books in that front room. You can choose a book and read it either there or in the office. You want to you go check out some books? Okay, great. Erica, will you, if you don't mind, to go in there and just hit the lights and let him uh, browse the library. Okay, cool. It's right on the right side when you walk in. Okay. Let's, um, let's move inside. Let's move inside. All right, page 40, chapter 4. Ready, ready to roll? David, you ready? I'm ready. Can we at the top? Uh, yeah, we can understand. We can understand this last point. Oh, what was the last point? <laughs> <laughs> no, the last point was that the, what the... Oh, is there a footnote here? No, 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 that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Which one? Yeah. Well, um, no, no, no. Because that's no. Here's the thing. The, the, what we're trying to explain is that the Greeks. Okay, hold on. Slow down. Slow down. What was the point? What was the point? So here's the deal. Very, very briefly, there are two ways to understand what the Greeks opposed to. Either they opposed to the super, super rational mitzvot. We explained last week there are three categories of mitzvot. The ones that make a lot of sense, like don't kill, don't steal. The ones that. I wouldn't have come up with, but kind of makes sense once I got them, like Passover and, and ironically enough, Hanukkah, like certain mitzvot that I wouldn't have come up with, but they, they, they commemorate something, an event, whatever, so it's like no different than Independence Day or um, Thanksgiving or whatever, so it, it makes sense to have those observances. Third category of mitzvot are the mitzvot that make no sense. Even after I get them, and I read them, and I study them, and I even do them a few times, they still make no sense. Like the red heifer, uh, spiritual uh, ritual purity and impurity, these things make no sense. Kosher, why can't, they, why can't I eat this and not that? It makes no sense. Shatnas, why can't I wear a, a garment mixed with woolen linen? It makes no sense. Many, lots of mitzvot make no sense. So the first way of understanding the Greek opposition was that they opposed to the irrational, or super, not irrational, the super-rational mitzvot called the chukim. Second explanation, which is the one that we've been discussing today and, yet, and the end of last week, is that they actually had a problem with all of the mitzvot if we are doing the mitzvot because God said so. So even the rational mitzvot, as we've been establishing today, if I, if I do them because, not because I understand it, but because I don't understand it and I'm doing it anyway, no, that didn't make sense. Let me try that again. Not because I understand it. Even when I do understand it, I'm not doing it because I understand it. I'm just doing it because God said so. That's what they opposed to. Does it make any sense? Mm-hmm. All right, let's read it inside. We can understand this last point based on the following known idea. Even the testimonial and judicial mitzvot must be fulfilled primarily because they are the divine will, just like the statute type So this is the big idea. When you, when you fulfill a testimonial mitzvah, like Passover that bears testimony to the Exodus. When you fulfill the judicial mitzvah like do not kill, do not steal, you're supposed to do it primarily because God said so, just like the ones that make no sense. Not because I understand, oh, this one makes sense to me, I got this one. You're still limited to yourself. You're still limited to yourself. And this is a big idea. This is a big idea. Because you might think that, look, if I have a reason that I can understand about the mitzvah, I might as well do it for that reason. He says, no. Judaism teaches, Kabbalah teaches, that every mitzvah you do primarily, ideally, because it's God's will. Continue. The concept that even the mitzvah for which there is a reason must be fulfilled because they are the divine will 
pertains not only to the person who fulfills them, that is, his fulfillment of the mitzvot should be like the service of the servant, which is only possible when he fulfills the mitzvot, not because of a reason or intellect, but because of the command of the master. So let's stop here. That was a long sentence mm-hmm. with lots of twists and turns. Yeah. But that's really what, what we explained in the first hour or so of this class. Right there. That sentence. Why is it important to fulfill the mitzvahs, to fill the mitzvot because they are the divine will? Why is that important? All the mitzvot. He says, reason number one is because then your fulfillment of the mitzvot is like the service of a servant. In other words, you are surrendering yourself to something greater. I would say that uh, a good example would be circumcision. Yeah. You, you come with sound effects, don't you? Yeah. Look at that. Circumcision. Ta-da! <laughs> it looks like the heavens are agreeing with you. Or disagreeing, I'm not sure. I can't tell no, them. It's a great <laughs> example of one that Makes no we sense. continue to do that we feel very powerfully about, that we are assaulted. Even, even till this very day? To this day. 100%. And, um, yeah, that the, the circumcision in Brit Milah is one of the most classic examples of a mitzvah that makes no sense. And you do it, you know, that's performed on a child when they are not of an age of consent. So there's no under, it's, for the parents, it's like, what are we doing? For the, for the child, the child is not, is, not, is not signing off on it. That's the fundamental difference as explained in Kabbalah between the Brit Milah, between the circumcision of Yishmael, Ishmael, Abraham's older son, and Isaac. That Ishmael had one, had a circumcision when he was 13. And Isaac had it, and Arabs told this very day, do it at 13. And Isaac had it at 8 days old. And they had a debate amongst themselves, amongst the children, whose circumcision was greater. And Ishmael said, mine is greater, I was 13, and I chose to do such a painful thing, because God said so. Fantastic. But, when you choose to do that, there still might be some sort of logical choice involved. Whereas the 8 day, there's no logic at all. And that, so it's symbolic of that which is completely super rational. But yeah, absolutely. It's 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 one of the most fundamental um, mitzvot. It's one of the ones, by the way. We had a footnote before. Footnote fifty-five on page thirty-six. Maimonides writes. Actually, it's not, uh, no Megillat Antiochus. The Megillah. You know, there's a Megillah for Purim. There's also Megillah for Hanukkah, but we don't we don't read it typically. Um, it's called Megillat Antiochus. It never became officially canonized as part of Jewish scriptures for whatever reason. Um, unlike um, the book of Esther, the scroll of Esther, which did become it's a, one of the books of scripture, Jewish scripture. Anyway, but it's, the Greeks prohibited a few mitzvot, circumcision, sanctifying the new month, and Shabbat. So circumcision is one of the ones that went after, which is certainly a, a super rational mitzvah. So here's the thing. The first sentence on, 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 in fulfilling in the paragraph with the caption fulfilling mitzvot on page 40, getting back to page 40, back to the future, is saying that when you do a mitzvah, when you fulfill a mitzvah because God said so, because it, it, it basically it's essentially the divine will, not something that you understand, and that's true of all the mitzvot, then you have the advantage. It's not really you're doing it because of the advantage, but there is inherently the advantage of the service of the servant, i.e. surrender. No matter what mitzvah you're doing, whether it's a mitzvah that has a reason or a mitzvah that has no logical reason, 
If you do it because God said so, at that point you're surrendering yourself to God's will. And when you surrender yourself to God's will, then you are connecting with something greater than yourself. When you fulfill the mitzvah that you understand because you understand it, you're connecting with yourself. And you haven't yet left the status of a human being, of an intellectual human being. When you do it from surrender, from a place of surrender, then you've now uh, elevated to a pure connection with God. But that's not the only reason why it's important to fulfill all of the mitzvot, even the rational ones, just because God said so. And rather... Rather, it pertains also to the mitzvot themselves. So it's not just about the benefit. Again, it's not about the benefit. But not only is it about you, you the, the, the fundamental difference within you, whether you do the mitzvot because you understand it or not, there's a fundamental difference when it comes to the mitzvot themselves, and he explains that right now. All mitzvot, even those for which there is a reason, are the divine will, will that transcends reason. It is just that God chose the that the desire for such mitzvot be clothed in reason as well. We have to look at all of mitzvot, every single mitzvah, as something that God wants. Certain mitzvot He also wanted us to understand, but that's also a want. Certain mitzvot He wanted us to not understand. But all of them come back to one essential idea, and that is that every mitzvah, whether we understand it or not, is something that God wants, fundamentally. I liked it better. It's more concrete than like the Christian idea that everything's a mystery. You, know, you hear this over and over again that, that it's a mystery. And yes, I mean some things are beyond knowing, and we may never understand these mitzvot. But it's written. It's laid out for us. It's it's really the divine will. It's what God wants. In other words, it comes back down to a simple it's thing. It's it, so on one level it is, on one level it's not. In other words, here's how I would look at it. It's like look at it like this. God, had, God created a world. And he, we know He created the world unfinished. It's not done. It's not finished. It's not, it's not, it's not perfect, etc. And our job is to finish a job. And God says, okay, so here's what you're going to do. You want to finish a job? You want to be partners in creation? Boom, here's the task list. Here's what you need to do, straight up. So you say, yeah, I understand. I don't understand. I get it. Okay, this one I understand. This one I'm really going to do. That I don't understand. So it's like you're building a house. So somebody says, you know, I really get plumbing. I don't really get electrical stuff. So I'm really going to do the plumbing well, and the electricity, the, elect, the electric wiring, I'm going to do kind of a shoddy job, or maybe I'll just skip it altogether because I don't really understand it. Guess what? It's not how to build a house, folks. That's not. It's not going to work. Is it? We're God said above everything else. We're here because God wanted us here, and we're here to do what God wants us to do. And when we do what we want, what God wants us to do, we're fixing, we're finishing the job of creation. That's it, straight up. We're fixing the world, whether we understand it or not. So one advantage of of surrendering ourselves to the divine will we said before was that now you become more divine, or you surrender to the divine, so you, you 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 you're now free in a sense. But there's another idea, and that is very simply, every mitzvah is something that God wants. Whether we understand it or not, and even the ones that we understand, it's not that we do them because we understand. We do it because God wants. God also wanted that we understand, so we also learn about it. The fact that we study is also divine will. You see that? I said that last week also. The fact that we study is because God, God wants us to study. It's not because we want to study because it makes sense, it's exciting to us. We study because God said it. You should study, so we study. 
God says, I want you to really study and really, uh, really enjoy your studies. So we really enjoy it. Why? Because God said so. But we never lose sight that ultimately it's because God wanted So that's why we do it. It's God's will. So that's what it comes down to, essentially. Every mitzvah, look, all mitzvot, even those for which there is a reason, all mitzvot are the divine will. Will that transcends reason. And that line over there, Ratzin, Shalomayin Lameyatam, that's a fundamental idea. We've explained it many times before. When it comes to the human being, we know the ten spherot, there are ten powers, soul powers in the person and the human being. You have functional soul powers, I'm working from below up. You have functional soul powers, you have emotional soul powers, you have intellectual soul powers, and then you have those soul powers that pertain to the unconscious, that are, or the superconsciousness. It's not the rational, not the rationale of the human being. You have the intellectual soul powers and those the ability that you have to think, to understand, to figure stuff out. Wonderful, Mazatov. You're an intellectual human being. But there are also powers that go deeper than that. Deeper than this ten soul powers. There's something called Keter, the crown. Within the person, it's called Ratzon, desire, will, what you want. What you want is deeper than what you can figure out. And the classic example is. The classic, and we've said it many times, the classic example is that many times when you want something, you will then rationalize why you want it. Which means that the wisdom or the rationale came after the desire. In fact, I turn to where Sandy's usually sitting because she can maybe help me out with this, with the brain science stuff, or anybody else, if we're not limited to Sandy, who's up in Boston visiting family. Um, but, you know, there are different parts of the brain. The amygdala, for example, is the most uh, uh, the, the, the original or the earliest part of the brain. And it's the part of the brain that deals with, in a sense, the um, survival. survival instinct. It's very instinctual. It's very much... And then there's like the frontal part of the brain. What do they call it? The frontal lobe and, or the cortex or my frontal cortex. And that's more the rational, the rational part of the brain. But recent studies have shown that pretty much we make decisions in the amygdala and then, we, and then the, the, the rational part of the brain is really just rationalizing decisions that we've already made. We've already made the decision. And when we go, when we think about it, because, and they did a study, they, 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 somebody had to have their amygdala or was, they had damage in that part of the brain and they, any piece of, any decision they brought in front of the person, they could never make a decision. Because they, they, when they came to figuring stuff, figuring one side of the argument, they then said, well, wait a second, there's a counter-argument. So they, they were forever vacillating between, because in the rational part of the brain, you can never come to a decision. Decisions come from a deeper place, a will, a desire, something inherent, something, something super-rational. What we would call Ratzin, will, that transcends reason. Reason is what we layer on top of will to make it more palatable to ourselves and to others. We say, you know what, I'm not so irrational as I look. I can give you a reason to justify my, irrational, my, my, uh, my decision. So let me give you a reason for it, and now we can be friends. Which is why we've said many times that when somebody really wants something, you can give them all the arguments in the world why it's an unhealthy thing, but until their will changes, nothing else is going to, no, no intellectual argument is going to matter. Because it's not, you're not really speaking the same language. Okay. 
It will be interesting to note if 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 this touches on Synex. Um, why? Well, he talks about you know Martin Luther King, you know, being able to create a movement. Yeah. Because what because what he kept saying is, I believe. He never said you know he didn't, he didn't say I he said I have a dream. He didn't say I have a plan. Right. So he's talked right. about belief, and he said when people showed up in Washington, two hundred fifty thousand people showed up. They didn't show up for him. They showed up for. Because they believe this. Simon Sinek. The gold, yeah, the golden circle. It's incre- It's absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. It is. It's, look, it's 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 it has like tens of millions of hits on YouTube plus on TED.com. It's very magical, yeah. But I think that that essential point of Dr. King basically saying, I believe, or I have a dream, basically saying, you, we're, I'm not going to rationalize this. That's right. This is something deeper than rationale, and it's something that resonates with somebody else. Because an argument doesn't resonate. An argument is an argument. I can give you a counter-argument. When you're dealing with seichel, you're dealing with, with logic, i give you logic here, I'll give you logic there. Yeah. You tra- I'll, tra- I'll trade logic with you. We'll get into an intellectual sparring match. And, w- and where are we? Where where we started. But you get somebody there deeper. So here's the thing. What's a mitzvah? You want to reduce a mitzvah to a logical formula? Oh, God wanted me to rap to him because of the benefits or because the... Because <laughs> when you rap seven times, it then means it's logical. It's not logical. Essentially, we're at its core, it is defined as it's wisdom that's higher than rationale, higher than reason, transcending logic. It's not logical, it's what God wants. Why? The question is faulty. The question is faulty. Why? You can't ask why on a want. It's a wrong question. You're using, again, the wrong tool for the wrong thing. It's the wrong question for the wrong thing. And when he kept talking about it, I believe, then other people who believe the same thing were drawn to the belief. And, and it wasn't that there was a conversation about it, it was just all these people came because they believed in the same thing. And I, I just, you know, I love this idea that people do this because, because it touches something really deep in themselves. Yeah. Because ultimately, you can't make somebody change. They have to want it for themselves. And we see this we see this today in various uh, new forms of technology and, and and you know you look at a website called like Kickstarter and you have people that back these brand new innovative ideas. Right. I'm a huge fan of Kickstarter. That's great. And Kickstarter is really because you get drawn in not by the idea, they may never make it you know, the product or the idea, they may never make it. And, uh, but it's, so you're excited about the concept. You're excited about, it touches you in a, in a little bit of a deeper place. Anyway, here's the point. The moment we reduce a mitzvah to a rationale is the moment that not only do we lose the power of surrender, which is a tremendously uplifting thing for the human being, paradoxically by not being about yourself, you're uplifted. But it also totally destroys the definition of what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah, by definition, even the ones that we understand, are not for reason. They're not about reason. It's that God willed that certain mitzvot also have a reason that we can study, but that's not where it comes from. It comes from Ratzai, and it comes from God's will that transcends reason. Good? We're going to stop here.
We're going to pick it up next week, reasons for mitzvot, and we're going to get into the concept that even the, mitzvot, the reasons that we do have for mitzvot are not the full reason, etc. We're going to continue to elaborate on this point, and I, I, my plan is to hopefully conclude chapter 4. Now here, becomes, here comes a relevant question. Here comes the extremely relevant question.